Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. When Israel's new coalition government took shape last summer, all signs pointed to progress on an egalitarian prayer site at Jerusalem's Western Wall, one of Judaism's holiest sites, which has emerged as a point of tension between Jews over how prayer is conducted there. But the plan appears to be in jeopardy due to divisions within that coalition government. Here to discuss the issue is Laura Shaw-Frank, AJC's director of William Pechet Contemporary Jewish Life. Laura, welcome back to People of the Pod. It's great to be here, Manya. You are becoming a regular, either as an expert guest or a guest host. So don't go anywhere, because after we're done, I'm sure we will need you again. I love being on People of the Pod. Well, we love having you, and especially this week, because only you can really explain to our listeners what the issue is with the Western Wall. Why is this such a sensitive and divisive subject? So I'm going to take us back a little bit to understand what the Kotel or the Western Wall actually is and where it kind of came from and how we got to the place that we are today. So as many of our listeners will know, in ancient times, the Jews had a great temple in Jerusalem. That temple was destroyed in 70 CE. It was actually the second great temple, and it was destroyed in 70 CE by the Romans. But a retaining wall around the temple plaza survived. And that retaining wall is what we now know as the Kotel or the Western Wall. It was the Western retaining wall of the Temple Mount. And that wall retained a sense of holiness for the Jews because it was sort of the only thing left from this great temple that was destroyed and has not ever been rebuilt. So over the history of the Jews' life in exile before they returned to the land in the late 19th century and then when Israel was founded in 1948, Jews often called it the Wailing Wall. And when they had access to it, they would go and they would weep about the destruction of the temple and the fact that the Jews were exiled and scattered to the four corners of the earth. And then when Jews started to come back to Israel, the Zionist movement began in the late 19th century and early 20th century, Jews would come and pray at the wall and really loved it so much as this touchstone of the Jewish connection to the land from many centuries before, but also as a holy place that they kind of felt close to God there because it was this one place that was left of the temple. And then the 1948 War of Independence, unfortunately, Israel lost control of the old city of Jerusalem to the Jordanians. So between 1948 and 1967, the Jews were not able to go to the Kotel. They were not able to pray there. They couldn't go there at all. It was another country. And that sort of heightened the yearning for the Kotel and the Western Wall. And then in 1967, as many of our listeners will know, Israel recaptured the old city of Jerusalem. And there was this moment of such unbelievable triumph, not only because of the incredible military victory, but also because we had gained control of access to this very, very holy site for Jews and the famous pictures of the soldiers at the wall and of the chief rabbi blowing the shofar at the wall and reciting the traditional Jewish prayer of Thanksgiving. So the wall has been really, really important in Jewish history and in Israeli history and sort of in the hearts and minds of Jews um, for thousands, literally thousands of years. And today, the Kotel is a site for prayer, for gathering, for Jews of all stripes. 
It has a separate section for men and for women now, today. There's a big, big plaza there and tables and places to pray and prayer books and all kinds of things and Israeli flags. And it's a very lovely plaza. It is a plaza that is conducted according to Orthodox Jewish rite. So prayer is separate, as I said, for men and women. Men can daven sort of in a prayer, can pray in a prayer quorum, a minion, but women are only permitted to pray by themselves or they could listen to a male prayer quorum. So it's definitely orthodox. It's certainly a gathering place, an important place, a holy place. And it has become an area of controversy because while Israeli Jews are not typically wedded to the egalitarian movements that American Jews know and hold so dear, like the conservative reform reconstructionist movements of Judaism, American Jews are very wedded to those ideals, ideals of egalitarianism, of progressivism in their religious thought, and certainly the conservative reform movements and other pluralistic and progressive movements are very much a part of the American landscape. So when American Jews go to Israel, they find themselves feeling very alienated at this site that, as we discussed, has been such a center for the Jewish people over centuries and millennia. So while Israelis sort of are basically happy with the status quo, American Jews are not happy with the status quo and see the situation at the Kotel as very alienating to who they are. I don't want to say all American Jews, because of course some American Jews are Orthodox and are fine with the separation at the wall, but other, you know, the majority, vast majority of American Jews is not Orthodox and find themselves often alienated when they're there. It's a complicated topic. That explains why it's kind of a contentious topic or a flashpoint for diaspora Jews, but why is it so contentious within the Israeli government? Great question. So the Israeli government does care about what diaspora Jews think. And diaspora Jews over a number of decades have pushed for some kind of egalitarian prayer space or some kind of ability to engage in egalitarian prayer at the Kotel because of its importance to the Jewish people. And the Israeli government has sort of tried to take into account diaspora Jewry's desire to have that kind of a prayer space. One of the problems is that at least in previous governments, not in the current government, there were ultra-Orthodox political parties as part of the coalition, and those ultra-Orthodox political parties were not willing to engage in any kind of an egalitarian prayer space at the Kotel. So they would stop any kind of law like that from passing or any kind of new procedure or any kind of new uh, system from coming into effect. The current government doesn't have any ultra-Orthodox parties in the coalition, which is interesting. That hasn't happened for a while. But the bottom line is that Israelis, for the most part, this isn't really their issue. So while the government understands that it kind of has to answer to the cries of diaspora Jewry that are upset about it, they don't have a lot of incentive in Israeli society to make those changes, and they have a lot of opposition in the form of the ultra-Orthodox to making those kinds of changes. So it's become a flashpoint, really, between the ultra-Orthodox Jews of Israel and the government, which, you know, particularly, I think, in times of COVID and in other times of stress in Israeli history, has not really had the stomach to take on that battle. It's not going to win them any love among general Israeli society. Most Israelis don't really care all that much. They're happy to pray separately, or they don't really feel all that attached to the Kotel because they're not religious. 
they don't have much of a stomach to take that on, given the political gains that they're going to get, which are minimal, to take on fighting with the ultra-Orthodox about it. I read somewhere that secular Jews have a joke that the synagogue that they do not attend is Orthodox, so they really don't care (laughs) about the egalitarian prayer spaces, that it's just not their issue. But correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Israel approve an egalitarian prayer site at the wall back in 2016? Yeah, so there is an egalitarian prayer site, it's called the Robinson's Arch, that is, if you know where the Mugrabi Bridge is, it's kind of a bridge that's sort of elevated above the Kotel Plaza. So on the other side of that, there is this egalitarian space that was set aside by the government. So that space has a number of issues associated with it. First of all, apparently, and and I don't really know the full details about this, but apparently there was a rock that got dislodged from the wall and fell in that space. So there's a feeling that there is some danger there regarding falling rocks. I mean, remember, this wall is very, very, very old, over 2,000 years old. In that prayer space, people can't actually go up to the wall. They can't touch it. And one of the things that, you know, if you've ever been to Israel or seen pictures of what goes on at the Kotel, one of the things that's most meaningful to people is that they actually go up to the wall and they touch it and they put a note in it to God or they kiss it. And actually one of the sweetest little traditions that Israel has is that there are people who actually collect, they go and collect these little notes that people put in the wall and they bury them in Jewish cemeteries as being kind of holy papers. So there is something that's like very important about touching the wall to Jews. So the fact that that can't be done in the Robinson's Arch area is certainly a problem. It's also a site that needs renovation, and those renovations have been sort of slow to come, and they haven't really been fully enacted. And lastly, in certain circumstances, namely like this past, I believe it was this past year on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of the Jewish month of Av, which is a fast day that actually commemorates the destruction of the temple, there were egalitarian Jews who were praying in that site, and a number of ultra-Orthodox Jews went and sort of disrupted their prayer and stuck in a divider to divide between men and women and did not allow them to proceed. So the Robinson's Arch has not been a great solution thus far, but also to talk about a plan that was put forth to kind of address this entire issue that incorporated the Robinson's Arch in addition to the regular Western Wall Plaza. So that was a plan that was created in a report, the Nisim Report, back in 2016, and it had three provisions. The first one was that there would be a joint entrance to the main Western Wall Plaza and that egalitarian plaza. So that would be like a really helpful sort of statement that puts on equal footing the egalitarian prayer space and the main Western Wall Plaza. It also incorporated a kind of permanent pavilion that would really enlarge the existing area of the Robinson's Arch prayer deck. It would make it far more expansive, much less modest. And most controversially, it would incorporate a joint council that's made up of representatives from the liberal streams of Judaism in Israel and government representatives to oversee the site. So that proposal was put forth in 2016 under Benjamin Netanyahu's government. And at that time, there was an ultra-Orthodox presence in the coalition. And that ultra-Orthodox presence put the kibosh, so to speak, on this Kotel, it was called the Kotel Compromise. And there it sat, the Kotel Compromise kind of sat there in kind of abeyance because while it was approved after much, much pressure, it was unable to be enacted because Netanyahu 
froze the plan in 2017 because of ultra-Orthodox pressure. So it's kind of been sitting there since 2017 and not progressing. And there was a thought that, okay, now we have this new government that's particularly sensitive to diaspora wishes and and diaspora concerns. So maybe it's going to move forward now. And and there aren't any ultra-Orthodox parties in the coalition who could threaten to pull out or anything of the sort. So there was a thought that maybe it would proceed, but it is not proceeding. (laughs) In fact, the Minister of Diaspora Affairs at the time of the Kotel Compromise was Naftali Bennett, correct? That is correct. He was very supportive of it. Right. So that would seem to bode well for the plan. But well, I guess it's more complicated than that, as you've laid out. So you have your own experience with Kotel politics. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And while you're at it, please explain to our listeners why you're using the term Kotel and not Western Wall. Sure. So Kotel actually means wall in Hebrew. It's one of the words for wall. And the reason I'm using the word Kotel is because that's sort of the term that's been in the uh, heart of the Jewish people for so many centuries. I like to use a Hebrew term when I can. It feels like that's the term that's used by the vast majority of Jewry in the world. And while it is indeed the Western Wall of the Temple Mount, it feels like Kotel's like the lingua franca of what the wall is to the Jewish people. So my experience, actually, we're going to have to go back quite a number of years. When I was a junior in college, I spent a semester studying abroad at Hebrew University. And during my year at Hebrew University, an organization was founded called Women of the Wall. And Women of the Wall was a group of religious feminists who wanted to be able to pray in a group. And earlier I mentioned that women can't pray as a group at the wall. They can only pray in a solitary way. And that has to do with complications of Jewish law that regard a women's prayer quorum as being not valid. And also some interpretations say that women's voices are inappropriate, singing voices are inappropriate. So women are not permitted to pray in a group. And the women of the wall wanted to pray in a group on Rosh Chodesh, which is the first day of the Jewish month, comes every month, and is traditionally a holiday that sort of celebrates women and women's strength and women's power. So they started going to the Kotel to pray as a group on Rosh Chodesh. They called themselves Women of the Wall, or WOW. Many of them, I will say, were Americans who had made Aliyah to move to Israel and sort of took with them that notion of egalitarianism and pluralism from their country of origin. And there had been, I guess it was either at the end of 1988 or early 1989, a a terrible incident where the women of the wall went to the wall and they were attacked to the point that some ultra-Orthodox men actually threw chairs over the divider between the women and the men. And one chair hit a woman who was an overseas student at Hebrew University with me, and she ended up in the hospital with a concussion. So I was not having it. (laughs) So I decided that I wanted to go the next month. So I went. I believe it was in February of 1989 that I went. We actually made an agreement ahead of time with the rabbi of the Western Wall that we wouldn't enter the plaza because there was such fear of violence. Going up to the wall, I remember they told us to bring scarves with us because they were afraid that the police were going to spray tear gas. And so we went with our faces wrapped in scarves and we went up to the women's section of the wall, but we didn't enter it. We bowed our heads. We prayed silently, and then we went to a different area to have our service because they were so fearful of violence at that time. So that was my little historical experience with Women of the Wall. There hasn't been a lot of progress for Women of the Wall, but it's still going on, and they still go every month. They actually live stream their services on Facebook, so you can watch them if you ever want to. 
Well, I actually discussed this issue on the show last year, shortly after Gilad Kariv took advantage of his parliamentary immunity to smuggle a Torah scroll to a group of women, to some of the women of the wall, during a prayer service there in the plaza. Of course, the Kotel only allows its own Torah scrolls to be read there, even though it makes no scrolls available to the women. And so he had smuggled one to them for this prayer service. And I was also struck by the fact that the restrictions apparently go beyond prayer. I've heard stories of women journalists being corralled behind their male colleagues, unable to see what they're supposed to be covering there on the site. And even Barry Weiss described being spat upon while reporting there on International Women's Day. It's really discouraging to hear these stories. And in fact, a rabbi friend of mine said, you should not go to the wall if and when you do go to Israel, because it'll ruin your trip. When you go to Israel now, do you make a point of going to the Kotel? I do find the Kotel to be unbelievably meaningful. Every time I go to Israel, I go to the Kotel, I go up, I caress the stones. They have a certain smell that I can't even describe, this sort of like dry desert kind of smell. I always put a note in. I always cry. (laughs) I'm like choking up a little even talking about it because I can smell that smell in my head of what it's like to be there. So I do find it very special, not only as a religious Jew, which I am, but also because of Jewish history. Like there's so much Jewish history at that place. We have pictures of Jews praying there, by the way, not separately, mixed. Going back into the 1800s, and of course there would be pictures earlier too if there was photography earlier. And of course, I always have in my mind that picture of the paratroopers liberating the wall in 67. So it's both a religious and sort of a Jewish national and Zionist thing for me. So I do. I always go there and I always find it meaningful. So should I? You should. And I'll tell you why, Manya. Don't let other people dictate that site for you. We have to stake our claim to it. I mean, we're all the Jewish people. All the Jewish people should have the ability to have meaningful moments at the Kotel. I mean, that's what this is really all about. There are a lot of changes and reforms on the horizon in Israel, a lot of steps taken to kind of broaden the tent with respect to Jewish religious beliefs. There's a new law set to go into effect in 2023 that will allow private organizations to offer kashrut certification services that kind of weakens the role of the chief rabbinate in this area. There is a draft of a conversion reform plan that was submitted to the parliament this week. Where does all of that fit into this conversation? It's a great question, because it seems like the Kotel is such low-hanging fruit, and kashrut certification and conversions feel so much weightier and so much more serious. I have to say, I think the reason is, and I believe my Israeli colleagues would agree with me, The reason is because kashrut certification and conversions deeply impact Israelis. And the Kotel, as we've discussed, really does not. The Israelis, you know, as you rightly said, the synagogue they don't go to is Orthodox. They see it as a province of the ultra-Orthodox. They go there, you know, for a bar mitzvah or whatever before their wedding or to get um, sometimes um, army units go there at the end of their basic training. But it doesn't carry the same import in the Israeli heart as do some of these other things. Kashrut certification is something that Israelis find very frustrating. They think that it's corrupt. They think that the rabbinate is too controlling and has too much power in that realm. And with respect to conversion, we have to remember that there are 
close to a million Russian former Soviet Union Jews living in Israel. And many of them are actually not Jewish, according to Orthodox strict uh, traditional Jewish law. And some of them want to convert. So this is a large population that is in Israel. And conversion laws have to take into account the fact that there are these people who are citizens of the state. They came in under the law of return, which has a different standard for defining who is a Jew than the sort of Jewish legal definition under Jewish law. So those are issues that are actually important to Israeli citizens. So, Laura, because this matters so much to diaspora Jewry, what is the government doing, this government, to improve those relationships? I have to say, I feel that Minister Nachman Shai, the diaspora affairs minister, is such a wonderful partner to work with for American Jewry. We have met with him um, at AJC at numerous times, and he really gets American Jewry. He has lived in the United States. He speaks English beautifully. He understands our concerns, and he really feels very strongly in his heart the importance of strengthening the relationship between Israel and diaspora Jewry. And I do sense that there is kind of a new feeling in the Israeli government about prioritizing that relationship. So even if it's not at the moment going to be the Kotel Plaza, there are so many other things that are in the works, that are being discussed, that are being put forward, including addressing the fact that we haven't been able to have so many trips to Israel during COVID, including addressing better diaspora education for Israelis, including all sorts of things like that to really work on strengthening the relationship and to emphasize to American Jews that the Israeli government does care very much about them and cares very much about their relationship to Israel. I actually think that it's a good time from that perspective. Laura, thank you so much. Once again, you have shed light on a very complicated topic, and I walk away with a much better understanding. So I hope our listeners do as well. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Joining me is this week's guest, Laura Shaw-Frank. Laura, thank you for sticking around to continue our conversation. Manya, I always love continuing conversations with you. Well, frankly, I'd like to pick up where we just left off, talking about the relationship between Israelis and diaspora Jews. You've heard my refrain, I've never been to Israel. But in anticipation of the trip I hope to one day take, I'm constantly gathering ideas and itineraries. So last month, my sister-in-law sent me the itinerary for the trip scheduled to celebrate her nephew's bar mitzvah. It included everything a 13-year-old kid who loves the outdoors and Israel would want to introduce to his American extended family. We're talking an off-road Jeep tour in the Judean desert, a hike through Ein Gedi National Park, sandboarding down the dunes of the Negev Desert, Tel Aviv's waterfront. I mean, maybe I'm a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> I would love this trip as well. But it also included a trip to Ammunition Hill to recount the unification of Jerusalem, the one we just discussed, and to Stayrot to view Israel's border with Gaza and visit an underground playground where children can go when under attack. I mean, it looked phenomenal. Each adventure is now a missed opportunity because the trip was canceled by COVID. And now the bar mitzvah is a virtual affair that we'll tune in for next week. But this bar mitzvah trip was certainly not the only one canceled. And with that in mind, it seems there's just a much larger missed opportunity there, albeit intangible. Indeed, it's so true. I have to first share the fact that I too had a family trip to Israel that was upended by the pandemic. My son 
Davi Frank is in his second gap year in Israel this year. And so since September 2020, we have seen him for a grand total of one month when he came home last summer. And we were meant to go as an entire family, including my in-laws and my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, whose son is also in Israel. We were all going together at the end of December and canceled. Oh, no, I'm sorry. So disappointing. So, so, so disappointing. So, yeah, I so hear you about the bar mitzvah. And I guess like what I want to say is that on some level, I'm not so worried about people who go to Israel all the time and have close family in Israel and are constantly, you know, sharing in these happy occasions and sad occasions with their Israeli relatives. And I'm more worried about the people who don't necessarily go to Israel at all and count on these very specific events or trips in order to go. And I'm thinking, of course, particularly about young Jews and less affiliated Jews. And we know from our 2021 survey of American Jewish opinion that three in five American Jews overall stated that being connected with Israel was important to their Jewish identity, but that number fell to 46% among those ages 18 to 39. And among secular Jews, it was only 34% who saw Israel as important to their Jewish identity. And we know how important trips are to forging that identity. We know from our study that 73% of American Jews who've been to Israel reported that their visits strengthened their connection to Israel. And of course, no one is surprised by that. I mean, given the itinerary that you just outlined, Manya, you can see the deep connections that that fosters. First of all, there's the beauty and connection to the land. Second of all, there's this connection to the history. And third of all, there's this connection to the people. Like you can't expect to understand Israelis and for Israelis to understand American Jews when we actually aren't meeting one another. So there's a lot that we need these trips for. So I'm really worried about that. I'm worried about the tens of thousands of young American Jews who might have gone to Israel during the past two years and who didn't whether it was on their summer high school trips, which reach a really wide range of American Jews from, you know, more like ultra-Orthodox to relatively unaffiliated. And of course, Birthright, which has been canceled many, many times. I think there may have been some Birthright trips over the summer, but, you know, the ones that were supposed to take place over winter break didn't happen. So I'm really, really worried about that. And I think actually that the Israeli government and the American Jewish community has to think very carefully about how we're going to recapture those folks after this pandemic is over and travel is able to be resumed in a real way. They're going to have to be creative. I mean, that's a very good point, Laura. Visiting the land is one thing, but engaging with the communities there is quite another. I'm less concerned, frankly, about the connection to Judaism than just plain fact-gathering and empathy. I want to visit Israel, the entire region, really, to better understand life on the ground there. I mean, so many Americans, Jewish and from other religious traditions, form opinions about policy there without ever having visited, without ever having experienced what it's like to live on the ground there. They're vulnerable to agendas, they're vulnerable to propaganda, and they're so certain about what's right and what's wrong. And the fact that a whole generation of folks has been robbed of the opportunity to visit in the past two years, and therefore probably never will, is, well, I should say likely never will, is particularly troubling, and it isolates Israel even more, which is the last thing that should happen to any country that's misunderstood. I just want to say, I'm not giving up. I don't think that we should say, therefore, probably never will. I think it is incumbent upon us to be creative and to think of ways to get those folks to Israel. And I think that this is an opportunity for the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs and the Israeli government to partner with American Jewry 
and really think creatively about recapturing some special moments for American Jews to travel to Israel, whether it's with subsidized trips, whether it's creating cohorts of people with common interests. One idea that I had is that maybe we should be creating programs who would actually reach people that you're talking about, Mania. Maybe we need some kind of a subsidized adventure for families with bar and bat mitzvah age kids that wouldn't only visit Israel, but would also integrate them and have them meet with their Israeli cohort of other families, Israeli families that also have bar and bat mitzvah age kids. I am not giving up. I don't think we should give up. I think we just need to be super creative. Agreed. Well, Laura, I hope you make it to see your son very soon. And Gabriel, mazel tov on your bar mitzvah. Trip or no trip, party or no party, it is no less an amazing accomplishment. Laura, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you missed last week's episode, marking one year after the insurrection, tune in for the conversation about how anti-Semitism undermines democracy. And don't miss next week's conversation with AJC CEO David Harris as he takes us behind the scenes of the infamous 1993 libel case against scholar Deborah Lipstadt after she called out one of the world's most notorious Holocaust deniers. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.